It's FAQ NYC Off Cycle, where the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city, steps back to take different and deeper looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm Harry Siegel, and in just a moment, you'll be hearing a conversation between Michael Kimmelman of the New York Times and Alyssa Katz of The City about walking New York City. But first, here's a brief announcement from our engineer, Adam Kamara. FAQ NYC is brought to you by The City, a nonprofit newsroom that holds New York's powerful to account and shines a light on NYC's undercovered neighborhoods. And from now through the end of the year, every dollar donated to the city will be doubled thanks to a generous matching donation. To power the city and FAQ NYC's essential local reporting, donate at thecity.nyc slash give. That's thecity.nyc slash G-I-V-E. Thanks, Adam. And over to you, Alyssa. Let's jump right in. Welcome back to another edition of What is New York For? FAQ NYC's interviews about the present and future of New York City at a time of profound transition. I'm Alyssa Katz, Deputy Editor of The City, and I've been talking with creators, writers, and innovators about the future of New York City in our COVID-scarred, internet-uprooted age. Why are we here in this strange and special metropolis anymore when humans can connect anywhere, anytime? Let's find out together. Today, I'm talking to Michael Kimmelman, architecture critic for the New York Times and founder of Headway, the Times' venture into nonprofit journalism focused on exploring solutions to complex challenges. Starting during 2020's COVID lockdowns, Kimmelman began to walk New York City's neighborhoods with companions who have deep connections with city neighborhoods and offer insights from disciplines that range from architecture to history to engineering. He turned their walk and talk conversations into wide-ranging columns for the Times that opened up the city for readers locked out of New York's glories during the pandemic. Now Kimmelman has combined these conversations into a new book, The Intimate City, which both reflects a unique and devastating moment in New York City history and is also a timeless document of some of the greatest places as told by people who help make them mean something. Michael, thank you for joining FAQ NYC. So, You're talking on a podcast to an audience of hardcore New Yorkers. Uh, We think we've been everywhere. We've done everything. We know every part of our city. And now you have this book, The Intimate City, that you're asking us to go through these walks with you and your companions. Where do you aspire to take us and why should we be going on these walks with you, these these (laughs) know-it-alls? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, uh, as a born and raised New Yorker and somebody who also considered myself a know-it-all. You know, one of the great joys and privileges of my job uh, has been to find uh, all sorts of places in New York that I have never been to and um, to meet people and and to discover communities, neighborhoods, buildings uh, that are a revelation to me. Um, I mean, I think the city is, um, you know, the city is kind of infinite and uh that is its enormous strength um but especially for new yorkers i think it's um that that idea that that, that it's an unending place is is something we take pride in even if we like to pretend we have seen it all the the truth is that we know we haven't even seen a tiny fraction of it and that was certainly my experience in putting together the book as well so was there anything that drew you 
to hug New York closer during the COVID crisis, right? And was this just out of necessity? Like you're an architecture critic, you've got a job to do, you're locked up in New York. Um, or was there an element of choice in embarking on these journeys? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I mean, necessity, as they say, you know, is the mother of invention. I think, uh, you know, let's go back. Uh, this this book was born in that very first moments when then Governor Cuomo declared lockdown, and um, you know, like everybody else, I was in a panic, and I I was uh, worried for my family and our health and uh, so forth. But I also uh, you know realized that I couldn't do my job in a normal way, and um, I'd have to think of other things to do uh, for lots of reasons. One of which was I, I you know I was still working, thank goodness, which was obviously. A privilege at a time when so many people were in such uh, dire straits, um, but also because I wanted to have my own distractions and my own sense uh, that I could hold on to something, um, and maybe work would be that. You know, I also think it's worth remembering that at that time, you know, we were all consumed minute by minute uh, with the news of this unfolding pandemic and a sense of everything we knew slipping away from us and. There was something um, both terrifying about the uncertainty of it, but also uh, exhausting about the sort of, you know, uh, the news cycle, which was, uh, you know, uh, unending. Um, so uh, so for me, it was an, it was a necessity. It was an opportunity as well. I think crises are also opportunities. Um, and I had done a book uh, some years earlier in which I took a lot of different artists to the Metropolitan Museum with the idea of seeing the same place Rashomon-like and in so doing, make a general statement about the fact that there is no single correct way to look at art and um, sort of trying to liberate people to think uh, more um, freely and to to be less intimidated in a way. Um but also because that was a way in which artists said something meaningful about themselves, told us about themselves. And so I, in the back of my mind, I'd always had this idea that it would be great to go around the city with different kinds of people and see places that were meaningful to them. Selfishly, the earlier project, the book called Portraits, had been a way that I was able to learn about those people and learn things about art. And so I also saw that as something that I could do in the city on a much larger scale to get people to show me things I hadn't seen, to tell me places that were meaningful to them, and also in the so doing, tell me about them. But mostly, I think it was a way of saying, okay, the city is an enduring rock that will be there. We see it at our windows, even if we're stuck in our apartments. And it's something we all continue to share, even if we can't necessarily be together. And so let's go back and look at the way the city has been put together. And in that, to, to understand that the city, like us, you know, uh, have been through crises before and have come out of them, so that there was something reassuring, consoling, as well as distracting about the city. And I think that is one of the main you know, messages of the book. The city is is a very complex, you know, organism that has endured a great deal that has been put together by millions and millions of people collectively over time. And its timescale is quite different than the timescale that would have consumed us in those days, early months and days of 
of of COVID. Yeah, I, I was really fascinated by the range of companions that you had on these journeys. And I was wondering kind of what came first. Did you have an idea of people you wanted to walk with, kind of categories, right? You have architects, an engineer, a planner, um, you have a landscape architect, and so on. How did the journeys come together and, and what element of serendipity was was in the mix there? Yeah, also a good question. So, I mean, I sent out an email in those very first hours, really, uh, to a variety of people I knew, and they were uh, along the lines of the mix you're describing, asking them to take a walk, take me someplace, because we could still go outside, we felt, um, at, at that moment, that very first moment. Then even going outside seemed a little terrifying. But, um, but, and so the first project, the first part of it was uh, to go to places that had just shut. So I went with David Rockwell, the architect, to Broadway, um, and he he had suggested uh, Broadway, and I thought that was perfect. I don't, I, or I suggested Broadway. I don't really remember, but in each of these cases, they had to be places that were particularly meaningful to the uh, people I was walking with. I didn't assign them or call people up and ask me to do things in particular. David wanted to do something. Broadway seemed natural. Broadway had just shut, so there was. It began with that. Um, and this very weird, otherworldly experience of meeting him on 42nd Street when it was it was almost not another human being there, just a couple of you know guys in in uh, Elmo and Mickey Mouse costumes wait, waiting for tourists that didn't show up. Uh, but it was also a beautiful, kind of eerie but beautiful thing to see the city. Time stopped the to be able to look at the buildings and look at the neighborhood and actually wander through as if. Um, as if through another dimension, really. Uh, and then I followed that up with Andrew Dokart on Museum Mile, because again, the museums were closed, and I thought it'd be interesting to see the same things, same places, but in this very different context, actually to look at the um, the, build, the buildings that you go into to see other things, as it were, from the outside. But once the project got underway, um, and people seemed to respond to it, I began to think of it as a larger project, something that would be pieces of a puzzle that could fit together. So to answer your question, finally, um, I increasingly was trying to see what what kind of a sampling could I have <laughs> that would be uh, on a lot of levels that could pass for a kind of simulacrum of the city. <laughs> so. I wanted a diversity of different professions, a diversity of backgrounds, a diversity of, of races and ages of people uh, and interests. Part of the point was that the city, after all, is you know, not made up of just architects designing buildings, but all these different forces that come together to create the circumstances in which we create buildings and streets and neighborhoods. So that included you know, the law, community groups, and so forth. But I also I also wanted some sort of geographic and also some uh, chronologic representation. So, uh, you know, it was a weird, Venn, weird but lovely, wonderful Venn diagram to sort of find the spaces of overlapping people and places. So I ended up with, you know, Eric Sanderson, the wonderful, brilliant Eric Sanderson, who was able to take us back in time and and for me that was a again going through a kind of harry potter portal uh to see manhattan manna manahatta 
and also the Bronx, you know, at, as if at the moment Henry Hudson sailed through the through the Narrows into the harbor. Um, and so there was that. I, I didn't get to Staten Island. I, as I say in the introduction, I, I didn't talk to a million different kinds of people. I didn't see a million different places. Um, and so being representative was never actually the goal. But having some sense that that the city is made up by all of us and that there are a million different kinds of voices and lots of different kinds of places. So I didn't want to stick to Times Square and Museum Mile. I also was in Mott Haven with Mantra Lopez. Uh, you know, I, I was in Chinatown with Nancy R. Mossback. Um, you know, I was in Forest Hills, as you mentioned, with Kate Orff and in Jackson Heights with Suket Tometa. And so, you know, uh, places that tourists may know and many of them places that they may not go to and also a lot of a lot of new yorkers probably don't go to and that i had not necessarily seen in the depth or in the way uh that i saw them with with my companions well one element that felt contagious to me is that you know these walks are so personal because the individuals are bringing their own not just their own professional experience um but then also their own personal stories as residents of the area or people who've worked in the areas or have a history or have studied them and i found that that in turn caused me to observe the city differently and some things mm. were just that for instance i saw a play the other day at the Hayes Theater which mm -hmm. David Rockwell designed the interior of right. and which he describes in the book. And I, I read that and thought, oh, now I know who designed that beautiful interior. Um, and then another walk that resonated with me was along the East River near Carl Schertz Park, because that's when I was a baby. That's where my you know, little kid, that's where my mom took me to play. Yeah, nice. um, and I also liked that chapter because I really liked how um, it was Deborah Burke, who's an architect. And, you know, that she was playing she was observing what is essentially a negative space in the city this the water as a kind of connector and the interstitial spaces around them um so i'm wondering i know you can't pick a favorite among all the children in this book but yeah. whether there was any any one of these walks that you found especially kind of revelatory or eye-opening where you really thought i've never seen the city this way before yeah uh you're right i i can't and i i certainly won't <laughs> just one, but I, I'm so glad to hear you say that because for me it was the same experience. And look, as a New Yorker, I was acutely aware that I did not want to just give people things that they knew, but things that for New Yorkers like you too would would be both surprising, um, but also strike chords, into, you know, intimate chords. And look, I, I grew up in the village and walking around with Andrew Dokart, even on parts of the village that didn't make it into the walk necessarily. But just talking about the evolution of the village, you know, I, I discovered things that I hadn't thought of before. I've been on McDougal Street, where my aunt and uncle lived. I grew up around the corner from there. I don't know, a million times? I don't know. I have no idea. But talking about the evolution of the city, the way that neighborhood was created essentially by populations of immigrants, as opposed to the northern part of the park, and what I began to suddenly see why the that area of McDougal South of West Third Street is different than the area, that's West Fourth Street really is different than the area uh, at the park and a little bit farther north and, and why the architecture is so different and why you have these sort of bespoke little shops and stuff, why they're tenements. And, and so for me, it was like, oh yeah, it's a little like you walking along Carl Schertz Park. Um, I, I think that happened a lot. Look, I, I do think 
the walk with Suketu through um, through Jackson Heights was was a ball. Um, that neighborhood is just you know one of the most fascinating, complex, enjoyable, um, you know, uh, uh, representative neighborhoods of the city. Um, so I, I think for me, I, I learned a lot, but I also I love that doing that because it was really Suketu talking about it was a kind of memoir. And, you know, for all of us, I think, especially New Yorkers, uh, it's why it's called the intimate city. It's not, <laughs> it doesn't matter when a building was built or who the architect is in the end. And it doesn't even necessarily matter whether a building is beautiful or not. It's, it's the way in which the city is lived and the the way in which we each experience it and contribute to it collectively that creates this thing that's much so much larger than ourselves um and that i think we can relate to especially for outsiders you know for whom new york can seem big and intimidating it's also a very important point about the city that it is made up of people who for whom it is a very deeply felt intimate place uh who experience it at a very you know, granular scale and don't, don't see it as overwhelming, uh, necessarily, but as, as something kind of personal, the one owns the city on some level once you live here, even for a day or two, but certainly over time. So. Yeah. The, the phenomenon you're describing also, um, it, it speaks to something of a paradox in the book, because, you know, as you're describing it, you're going on these walks, maybe they're not all during the toughest of the lockdowns, like your walk mm. through the eerie, eerie walk through Times Square. But it's during a period where, you know, and this is also reflected in the photos in the book, which, of course, we can't see on this podcast. But there are these gorgeous photos of buildings and places and settings. Um, and by and large, there are no people in the photos, right? It is a chance to appreciate the, the built environment in a very pure way and as filtered through the individual, you know, the, the companions you're walking with and yourself. Um, and then, you know, we are now looking at this book, 2022, going into 2023. Um, and, you know, in some ways, we're in a city that is, you know, has very much research where, you know, people are in the streets, they're engaging uh, with these places. And in, other ways, um, we're still very much in a kind of 2020 mindset when it comes to our own interaction to the built environment. Mm. So, for example, your walks, they're outdoors, right? And that was out of necessity at the time. It was out of um, a kind of the, the, the culture that very much grew out of COVID safety, outdoor dining, everything else as lived outdoors. I mean, that's a very particular way of engaging with a city. So I guess my, my question for you is, is you know, putting all these essays together into a book, how, you know, how, what do you hope people now in, in 2022, 2023 will get out of that engagement with this kind of um, very abstracted interaction with places that mattered to people before, but then were kind of frozen at that moment as, as places in between? Yeah, I mean, I think the book has a couple of functions, and one of them is as a snapshot of a particular and very memorable, odd, alarming, <laughs> but historically significant time. Um, and and COVID weaves in and out of these chapters a little bit, but they were written in a 
extends to exist like the city outside that time and to also get people outside that time so that way they would because of course many of them appeared in the new york times first and they were for those readers a way of having another kind of thing to read about um so the absence of covid from many of them many of the chapters had a meaning in 2020, which is a little different now. Now, I think the book, and very intentionally it was written this way, is supposed to be something that isn't about COVID per se, but is written against the backdrop of that, but that is about the city as this, you know, it, it, uh, the book is hopefully will be read and will be useful, you know, for years to come. And that's because I think so much of what people talk about is not about that particular moment, but about their own sense of a relationship to the city or what they see as significant about the making of the city. How, for instance, you know, you get a lawyer and, and designer like uh, Gerald Caden to talk about the sort of legislative and legal issues that created the, that laid the groundwork essentially for 42nd Street and, and all the projects along it, uh, as we know it now. Um, that was not anything about COVID, but it was about Gerald's perspective, but also about this, you know, the history of the city. So I'm I, I'm expecting that people will read the book not as a kind of melancholy meditation. It's actually quite the reverse. It's a very cheery, <laughs> upbeat book because it's full of a kind of wonderment about the city and about its infinite sort of fascination. Um, but underneath it, there is this subtext. You're right that uh, it was born out of this um, very disturbing moment in which people found solace in the city, which I think we still can and do. So you're running, in addition to uh, writing for the Times and, and other other things, you were also running a nonprofit news project associated with the New York Times called Headway. And uh, since this is a podcast from another journalism nonprofit, The City, mm-hmm. uh, I want to ask you about how the headway has been going and how that's changed your canvas as a journalist, what you can do and show and say and what kind of impact you can have. Yeah, headway is, um, uh, we, we basically, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary uh, when we launched uh, almost exactly as you and I speak, um, December of uh, last year. And we're a small team. Our our mission, as we've said it, is to focus on big global challenges and paths to progress, a broad, uh, intentionally undefined brief, uh, uh, focused around issues, you might say, more or less about the built world. So we're not dealing with how to, you know, fix the euro after Brexit or, you know, or fix the Supreme Court. There's a lot about that. But we are focused on anything to do with what you might call the world as we build it. And we're looking at, um, we're trying to change essentially the tone of a lot of the public conversation, uh, to build constructive conversations and ask questions about what, what could be. So for instance, um, I wrote a big piece in the summer, uh, spent a year working on looking at how Houston had reduced its homeless count by uh, over two thirds, about two thirds, um, and housed about twenty five thousand people. Um, and w- what is that? What are the lessons of Houston? And uh, you know, it's not supposed to be the good news section, 
but it is supposed to sort of raise issues around uh, what what is possible or what the obstacles to progress might be. So we've, uh, you know, I, I consider this a little engine that could. I, I'm very proud of our team. Uh, I hired as uh, the editor Matt Thompson, who's a genius and a wonderful person and a, a wonderful colleague and friend. Vera Tatunik, one of the world's greatest editors, long-form journalism. Um, Terry Paris, who in fact had been at the city and before that at ProPublica, and Jason Chu, and a couple of other people. And, uh, you know, we've had stories from all, all over the world. And so I should also say we, we are, have nonprofit support and of course a lot of support from the Times. Among other things, that means all of our work exists outside the paywall, but it crucially does something else, which I really wanted to do. And that is, you know, Headway was partly born out of a, another reaction against this sort of doom scrolling 24 hour, you know, minute by minute climate of the news that I think has been a very toxic part of our culture for a number of years. How can we step outside that and have a different kind of conversation around big challenging issues? One that doesn't only focus on what's happening tomorrow or sort of the politics around that, but looks, you might say, longitudinally. It looks back on ways we've imagined making progress in the past what worked, what didn't, and looking again towards the future about what kind of futures we imagine. Houston, for instance, really was a review of 10 years of work in Houston, um, trying to understand how a certain system had brought about change. Um, But the other aspect of that was to um, be able to engage with the public in a different way. So a lot of, I think, the toxic you know, doom scrolling stuff has created a social media culture and even a kind of culture of commentary within a place like the Times that is not really what you might call um, constructive. I don't know what another word is or, or very um, healthy. <laughs> um, how can we promote and and facilitate and incubate and and support a different kind of conversation. And partly by having nonprofit support, it allows us to think in terms of developing communities around issues rather than simply the number of readers and the number of comments or whatever it is that your metric is for judging you know, journalistic impact. So we have tried to, we're, a lot of our work is around developing a thing called the public square and to share our platform and to share our uh, research and to get people to share research with us. So, for instance, on the homeless piece, we had over 3,000 people responding to call outs, and they were substantial, interesting responses from all sorts of experts, as well as people homeless and formerly homeless. It's a very different sort of engagement. And that's, that's what we're hoping to promote as well. And we're trying to experiment with different kinds of engagements physically too. So we wrote a piece about uh, Anacostia in Washington, D.C., where there's a proposed bridge that would um, be built into Anacostia from the other side from the Navy Yard there, which is causing some concern in Anacostia, traditionally African-American neighborhood, poor, about gentrification and displacement. Um, And that's what we wrote about. But we want to continue that conversation with the people in Anacostia not just follow, follow that story through through time, 
and to have them tell us as well what they think the story is. So after we did that story, we also organized some community meetings um, in collaboration with groups in Anacostia. And, uh, you know, I've never been to a less time-seeing event. It was about two or three dozen people from the neighborhood and a little theater group from the neighborhood. And they were, they were chatting and we were observing about uh, what they imagine Anacostia to be and so forth. So we're trying to find many different ways of engaging that are quite different than what the Times traditionally does. And lastly, we're also uh, working with a lot of local news organizations. We have fellows. So our first fellow worked with us on homelessness, and now she's working. Uh, we have subsidized her, and she's working at the Texas Tribune. We have another fellow, and she'll go out and work as well at some local news organization. So we're trying to seed headway as well as collaborate on these projects with local news organizations, which which is a new ambition as well for the Times and, and definitely, I think, crucial to our being able to work on a, you know, on a grander level in communities. Well, there's a lot of resonance there, certainly, with how we work at the city um, and engage with communities. It's just so great to see that model growing and uh, and diversifying in so many different ways. The city, uh, by the way, yeah. I'm sorry, Liz, but I just want to say the city is great. And well, thank I, you. And I love the city, and you're absolutely right. Um, and, of course, Terry came out of the city, and uh, and so we're learning a lot from the city, too. That's It's excellent. Um so I'd like to now take that headway mindset, right? The longitudinal thinking, the constructive engagement. Um, you've obviously been thinking about New York City and, and, and uh, writing about it in, in neighborhoods and uh, its development for a long time. And, you know, this this segment of the FAQ NYC podcast is called What is New York For? Right. And one question that I've been wrestling with with guests is just, well, where where do we go from here? I mean, New York just went through a cataclysmic event, um, which really led to some profound dislocations, right? Especially the sort of very, some of the very core functions of the city have really remapped onto the internet. Um, we're talking now on Zoom, of course, even though we are, we may both be in Manhattan right now. Um, and uh, people, I think the engagement with New York City, in my view, is sort of a more discretionary activity. And there's obviously a lot of good discretionary reasons to be in New York City. But the question I keep coming back to is what are the sort of imperatives for the city to exist? And what is the narrative going forward? Um, and coupled with that is a question of sort of just talking about the built environment, since that really is the focus of the intimate city, kind of what is the built legacy of our moment? And I get into very dystopian views of, well, it's super talls and it's cardboard boxes on the street. Um, that people are living in. And I, I'm not really being facetious saying that. That literally is what our city is building at the moment. So I'm going to throw all that back to you and ask you, where do you see the green shoots coming up? Where do you see the next generation's story as we're coming out of COVID? Or is it even too soon to see that? Yeah, I mean, this is, of course, the the question that people were asking in the first days of COVID. I mean, in a way, the book itself was a response to... <laughs> to the pressure from editors to tell people where things were going when it was not clear where we were going in the next minute, much less the next day, month, or year. Um, and I think it's still early to say. So I have to preface my answer by saying, look, you know, you will recall that after 9-11, 
there was all these predictions about the end of the city. People were moving away. No one would ever build a skyscraper again. Who would, no one would live in one or work in one. And what followed was not just the biggest boom in skyscraper history, but an economic boom, which was followed by an economic collapse in which we went through again a cycle about how the city was, you know, suffering and in despair. And we were, you know, here was Wall Street collapsing and yet New York was dependent on the financial industry. And then we emerged from that and had another incredible boom. And then COVID came along and here we are doing it again. So within the last 20 years, this is the third time we're having this kind of existential conversation. And I think that alone should give us pause about um, predicting that somehow this is the end of the city in some way or that there's some change that's taking place now that is uh, irreversible. That said, <laughs> so you can hear that on the whole, I'm, I'm positive about the city. The city has gone through lots of ups and downs. I'm old enough to remember the 70s and to look back on them now as a period of enormous creativity and a period when the city got a lot of things done, even though at the time it seemed that the city was nearing its end point. Um, we're definitely not there or anywhere close to that now. We can see, for instance, the construction of these streeteries as a blight, or we can also see it as a remarkable example of the ability of the city when it has a collective will to make big change rapidly. Um, that happened, 10,000 parking spaces eliminated overnight, uh, happened because of the free fall of the hospitality business. Usually getting rid of a single parking space in the city is, you know, like a, it's just a bloodbath. I take from that not only that it reminded people that the physical space of the city was crucial to our mental well-being and our collective sense of purpose because those streeteries helped bring us out. It didn't only remind us that the streets did not always look like this and that we have given over so many much of the streets to cars, but that we can reclaim the streets and reshape them. And therefore, the city is a organic, malleable thing. But it told us that we can act quickly and much more collectively uh, than we have come to believe that we can. All of those, to me, are positive uh, outcomes, even if I don't like every one of the streeteries uh, of, of COVID. To just answer your question a little more directly, look, I, I do think, because I do believe the city changes all the time, that yes, there are things that COVID seems to have triggered. I think the five day week, five day week, yeah, work week for office workers is for the foreseeable future a thing of the past. We are talking about a certain kind of office worker, generally a more well paid, higher end office worker. We're not talking about the vast majority of workers in the city, even a large proportion of people who work in offices. Um, but are not the executives um, and for whom the, they are not given that same choice. But if we're talking about that, then yes, we are talking about a large portion of the city that's based on office buildings and the economy of office buildings. And that may, we may go through some changes there, which I think are healthy. 
Um, I think, for instance, the idea of building giant skyscrapers at Penn Station to finance what really should be the renovation of that neighborhood based on good socially minded policies is insane to begin with. So let's not build more office towers there. I didn't think Hudson Yards was such a great idea. And I don't think we need to do more of that there either. Um, and we can convert more office buildings. Uh, so if one of the outcomes is that we need to rethink the mix of residential and office, that's fine. I just refuse to believe, looking back over the history of the city, that somehow the ability for you and me to talk via Zoom and have this conversation means that I, we no longer need the city, that that we could be doing this just as easily if the city somehow didn't exist for us. We're talking about the city. <laughs> we, uh, we make a living based on the idea that the city is a meaningful, um, crucial part of human civilization, not just our daily lives. Um, and I deeply believe it. I think the city is the most important achievement of our society. Um, and it is an ongoing project. It's not supposed to be something that just works automatically. It's something we have to make work collectively. And we do that better and worse at times, but that's the project. Um, and our ability to do it is, is essentially the basis of our civilization and our democratic notions. So I, I, I'm not leaning into the gloom and doom, even if we go through a period of economic recession and some decline, maybe even of population. I mean, you know, uh, such things have happened before. Well, you've uh, eased my pessimism just a little bit, and uh, <laughs> I thank you for that. And I really thank you for this uh, conversation. This has uh, really been a pleasure. I've been talking to Michael Kimmelman, who's the author of The Intimate City, uh, architecture critic for The New York Times, founder of Headway, and uh, just a wonderful thinker and writer on cities and in New York City in particular. So thank you very much. Thank you, Alyssa. It's been a pleasure. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're a part of the city, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. From now through the end of the year, every dollar you donate to the city will be doubled. And you can do that by going to thecity.nyc slash give today. That's thecity.nyc slash G I V E. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists, online at popula.com. Our host this episode was Alyssa Katz, Deputy Editor at The City, and our executive producer is Harry Siegel. I'm our engineer, Adam Kimera. A special thank you to our guest, Michael Kimmelman, architectural critic at The New York Times and the author of The Intimate City, walking New York. And thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.